and welcome to this episode of Unpacking the Case, where I am once again joined by our Head of Legal Training here at DJB, Richard Snape, to discuss the pertinent case from our most recent webinar on key issues affecting easements, the characteristics of an easement. Okay, so Richard, starting off in your notes, you mentioned the uh, case of Parker and Roberts. Could you tell me a little bit more about that case, please? Yeah, it's a, it's a 2019 Court of Appeal case, and uh, it's uh, it's based on the principle, it's a principle called uh, the rule in Harrison Flower, which is a case from 1904, so not exactly new, we've sort of uh, dealt with it. And that's that if you um, extend your land, uh, you know, if you've got an easement to a piece of land uh, and then you extend the land, uh, you can't uh, be sure that the extended part will have the benefit of the easements. And what you should be doing is expressly creating an easement when you go through the extension of the land uh, with a Serbian owner's agreement. Um, suffice to say that uh, that's obviously been a uh, law for many a year now, but starting off in the late 1990s, probably with a case called Jobston Record in 1998, uh, it was uh, varied to some extent, the rule in uh, Harrison Flower. And that if you extend your land and the extended part is used for an ancillary purpose, it's a secondary sort of related purpose to the original use of the land, you can still have your easements. So again, by way of a sort of intro, there was a case I remember in 2017, a, a court of appeal case called Gore and Nahid, where they owned a property which was uh, accessed across, you know, an easement of access uh, across neighbouring land. And they... Um, extend well they basically extended their land um uh bought some land at the back and were intending to to build a, a garage on it and the neighbors objected to this uh you know, use of the land you know, the extra land and the court of appeals said that use of a garage is ancillary to, to use of the house and so you've still got your easements uh so that's the background and uh then came parker and roberts in 2019 okay and what were the facts of that case yeah, well, Roberts, um, it's a kind of convoluted set of facts. They, Roberts was um, wanting to build, a, with planning permission, <clears throat> a 5,000 square foot uh, additional house in a piece of land that had been hived off. It's, it was garden land currently. Uh, this is in Cobham in Surrey, so I suspect worth a tidy sum of money. Um, the whole of this land, including the access land, was uh, in common ownership back in the 1920s, but then seems to have been divided and various people succeeded to various plots of land. Um, a predecessor to Roberts owned the garden land that was going to potentially be built upon. Uh, it was called the yellow land throughout the case. And then in 1968, there was a... a conveyance uh, of uh, the land to the predecessor. So they've now got uh, the two pieces of land, but under different titles, the conveyance only included the sort of land where the, the house was, was they, they owned the garden originally. And they were given an easement uh, of access to this house, but didn't mention anything about the garden land, the yellow land. Uh, and uh, Roberts, gets the planning permission to build in the on the yellow land but the neighbors uh, the parkers object to this and claim that you don't have an easement to do so and i say that was the background facts um and it got as far as the court of appeal they were arguing numerous things 
They tried to argue there was a long user easement, a prescriptive easement through long use. Uh, that failed on the facts. They tried to argue that there was uh, an implied easement. You know, when you purchase this land, it must be implied that you've got a right to use the, the land that you already, you know, the right for the land you already own as well. Uh, but the court uh, uh, gave that, uh, well, they, they gave that short shrift and that um, implies eas implied easements can only creative if there's nothing expressly to the contrary and it was quite clear in the, the uh, 1968 deeds that the, the right of the easement was only for the benefit of this land you know the land with the house on it um so that sort of those arguments failed but um they accepted as well the court of appeal that um the use of a, a as in goring the heed the use of a, a garage is ancillary to the house but the use of another house is not it's a totally different use and so you didn't have an easement to access the new house and the neighbors would have had either the ability to stop you via injunction or potentially a ransom as well they can sell you the you know, the additional right away and uh i'll leave it to the valuers but the valuation principles are based on a case called stokes and cambridge from 1961 stokes and cambridge corporation and the starting point of the, for the value of ransom strips is about a third of the betterment value. And I suspect the third of the betterment value in Cobham and Surrey for a 5,000 square foot house and garden is a lot of money. And so the Roberts has failed. And in your opinion, what should have happened in that case? Well, back in 1968, um, if they were advised correctly all those years ago, when they purchased this house, uh, already owning the garden at the back, the yellow land at the back, they should have made quite clear and probably had to pay more money for it, that there was an express, express easement for use of the land plus the, the land they already owned. And that's where they went wrong. It becomes more difficult uh, in the other cases, you know, there's a subtle difference between buying uh, a piece of land and already owning land at the back and buying a piece of land and, and at a later stage in a different transaction, buying a piece at the back because you couldn't uh, make the easements for the benefit of land that you didn't own yet. So they would be in trouble there and you know, they'd have to negotiate at a later stage. Thank you for talking me through that one, Richard. So moving on to another case that you mentioned in the notes, Standing and Baldwin. Could you discuss that matter further with me? Yeah, Standing and Baldwin is on the face of it, uh, similar to the case I mentioned. Uh, the Parker and Roberts, and it's something that people get confused between the two, but is, there is a difference between it. Parker and Roberts is about adding to the existing land or having a neighbouring piece of land on different title and whether you have easements. Uh, this is about what they call intensification of use. Uh, you own a piece of land and can you intensify the user of the land? You know, if you've got one house, can you convert, uh, build a second house on that plot? Or can you convert the house into flats and everybody has the same say, right of access or drainage? And what's the background law? Yeah, there are large numbers of cases and often they depend so much on their facts. And without the benefit of hindsight, a lot of them you can't uh, really say what the decision is going to be. I can remember a couple of cases in 2009 within you know, a couple of months of one another, one called Davlin Pole uh, and one called Thompson and B where they had a piece of land that was identified as garden land and they wanted to build three houses there. So it's very, very similar set of facts. Uh, they were accessed across a neighbouring piece of land with easements of access. 
uh, Davil and Polly succeeded. There wasn't an unreasonable intensification of use, and for reasons I'll never understand, Thompson and B, they failed. But the, the classic case of modern times, at least, is a case called McAdams Holmes and, and Robinson from 2004, Court of Appeal case, uh, which all took place in Barnum in uh, West Sussex near Bodmer Regis. And it was uh, the, the land which was accessed across neighbouring land in this particular case was a, a, a bakery that had shut down sometime in the mid-1980s. And McAdams Holmes now wanted to build two uh, four bedroom detached houses there. And the question was about the drainage. Robinson, whose drains, the, well, the drains were under Robinson's land, they um, blocked the drains, saying we don't want two houses here. And the Court of Appeal accepted that uh, there's no unreasonable intensification of use unless there's a radical change in the dominant land that's got the benefit uh, of the easements and not just a change in, in the use or intensification of use. But secondly, there's got to be a, no substantial increase in the burden to the servient owner. As it happens in that case, the High Court and then the Court of Appeal refused to reverse it, although they had the doubts, decided that this was uh, an unreasonable intensification of use. So that was the classic case. You're looking for a substantial increase in the burden and or a radical change in the character of the dominant land. The background facts to um, Stanning and Baldwin. I mean, it took place on Gerard's Cross Common in Buckinghamshire. And uh, Stanning uh, owned a house called the Coach House that had been built in 1978 on this uh, particular piece of land. There was already a, another building called the Old Coach House, which uh, was sort of outbuilt, and they converted it into, into the Old Coach House on this land to a residential use uh, back in 2009. The Baldwins uh, were the lords of the manor of uh, Chalfont St Giles, and uh, basically owned the manor. Their father had bought it for £100 back in 1962. Obviously, they want to continue using the access way. Uh, and uh, they wanted to argue they could continue using drains. They got planning permission to knock down and demolish the coach house and replace it with four, they were called terraced houses, but I'm not sure they're the sort of back-to-back -back terraces you might think, uh, especially as they had underground car parking. Um, but uh, could you intensify the use? Could you use the drains and could you use the access way, which was on tarmac across the common? So what did the court decide in relation to the access way? Well, I mean, it was first accepted and wasn't argued that there was no radical change in the character of the land. They're still residential. It's just whether it's a sub substantial increase in the burden of the servient land. And obviously it's sort of uh, affected by the fact that uh, it was a common. And various arguments were put forward, not least of which that all this construction work is A, going to damage this access, this, you know, on tarmac access way, but B, will result in, uh, you know, sort of disruption to the common and the likes, and uh, will be an unreasonable intensification of use. Uh, the, uh, there was a lot, a lot of factual things. They produced sort of uh, um, photos and the likes of the 1978 building of the coach house and the 2009 refurbishment of the, uh, the uh, old coach house to show that uh, it wasn't particularly an unreasonable intensification of use. There was no evidence that anything would have changed, you know, for any construction work now. And uh, they were also prepared to put down um, 
sort of hardcore, you know, temporarily a hard standing for, for the vehicles. So that sort of failed that argument. They also argued, well, there were bylaws that dealt with the with common that you couldn't um, you know, sort of unreasonably interfere with the locals' use of the common and the likes of annoy the locals or commit a nuisance. Well, the court said that, uh, High Court said that that wasn't proven. Uh, and there was very little evidence that uh, the intensification would be unreasonable. There would be six houses using this, and uh, six to ten wouldn't be a great, great burden. So they failed on that. Uh, they couldn't uh, they prevent the use by standing for the four coach houses, which just surprised me a little bit. But um, that was the decision. And you also mentioned drains. What was the issue there? Yeah, the main issues there were whether you had easements to, to run the drains uh, to your existing house and then you know, to the four terraced houses already. And um, this is, again, something quite interesting, actually. Uh, but um, we were claiming that there might be a prescriptive right or there would be prescriptive rights to run drains. Our prescriptive rights are based on long user. Uh, but it's got to be as of right without forced secrecy and permission or permission. And there's always been a bit of an academic discussion. Could you have a prescriptive right to run drains? Because are they secret? You know, you can't see underground drains and pipes. Um, so can they give rise to a prescriptive easement? And the court decided that in the past, you know, for instance, when the coach house was built, it would have been obvious that you were digging the drains across the common. Uh, and so it was... Uh, it wasn't with secrecy, you know, it wasn't done dead of night and it would be quite obvious that this coach house must have had some form of drainage. So they had a prescriptive right of drainage and uh, one on that basis as well. And that's Stanley and Baldwin. Okay, thank you, Richard. And uh, now a second matter that I know you'd like to discuss is HKR UK and Heaney. Could you tell me a little bit more about the background of that case, please? Yeah, it's all about rights to light. It's a very controversial case, and where it stands the test of time is another matter. But um, it is quite an amazing case, if you're, especially if you're involved in developments. Um, the background is that it all took place in the centre of Leeds, on a, a road I know called Infirmary Street, on courses nearby, sort of backing onto the old post office, which is a bit of a landmark. Um, and um, the Heaney had purchased um, this particular premises in Two Infirmary Street. It was a listed building, five storeys. Uh, used to be a uh, 19th century building, used to be the headquarters of something, somebody called the Yorkshire Penny Bank. But Heaney purchased it and claimed to have spent three million pounds bringing it up to its current splendour and likes, uh, restoring it and then letting it out. Um, uh, five floors of offices, basically. Um, HKR UK um, purchased a neighbouring site intending to develop it. They already had buildings on there, it had five storeys, but they were going to, amongst other things, build the two additional storeys. Um, and it became uh, somewhere called Toronto Square in the centre of Leeds. Uh, the purchase price, the cost, uh, was um, £18,750,000 for this site. But they'd reduced the price by £350,000 because of rights to light uh, issues, potentially these two additional floors blocking uh, the light to the neighbours. Richard, can you tell me some of the background in relation to rights to light? Yeah, it's incredibly complicated. Now, a lot of this case involved um, surveyors specialising in rights to light and what amount of light are you entitled to. 
But basically, most rights to light arise through prescription. Um, 20 years user, it's the one uh, historically that the land registry has always accepted. Uh, you can claim prescriptive long user rights to light after 20 years, unless agreed with written agreement and unless enjoyed with the written agreement of the, the neighboring owner. Um, and obviously, this light has been received through the former Yorkshire Penny Bank uh, premises for many, many years. And uh, they, um, you can have rights to light through defined apertures, um, basically windows. You're not entitled to a right to light generally on your garden, for instance. But obviously, this has got defined apertures and windows. Um, the test in terms of infringing upon light is, is what's left a reasonable use of the land. There'd been a case um, in 2007, another um, controversial case called Regan Properties and Paul, which was residential property, where they'd actually allowed an injunction, not just damages, but an injunction stopping you building because you would block uh, the rights to light. And amongst other things, in this case, it was suggested that, um, and well, this was a, you know, Regan and Paul was a house, these are offices, and you know, offices don't need as much house as residential dwellings and the likes. Uh, and also the amount of light that would be blocked by these two additional stories would be uh, less than 1% of the whole surface area of the, of the, the um, Heaney's property. Um, so that was some of the background. Um, what happened is that the HKR UK, well, the predecessors to Heaney, uh, to HKR UK, so I'll do that again. The predecessors to HKR UK had already discussed with Heaney the possibility of uh, obstructing light, but nothing happened. When um, HKR UK bought the site in September of 2008, they sort of negotiated with their solicitors in late 2008, early 2009 about obstructing the light, uh, but the negotiations got nowhere. They actually offered £20,000 plus costs to Heaney, and Heaney just ignored the correspondence, didn't try to get an injunction initially. So um, they went ahead and uh, built the two additional floors. One of them was already let out at the time of the case to a firm of accountants. And what was the court's decision on that? Uh, yeah, I do stress highly controversial. Um, but uh, the court uh, decided that it might only be a small surface area of the, the block that is affected by the, the reduction in light, but they were sort of strategic areas, included the boardroom and entrance areas and lights. And uh, you couldn't be satisfactorily uh, rewarded through damages, and they, they awarded injunction. Uh, HKR UK were told to pull down the two additional floors, which obviously necessitate them um, uh, well, terminating the lease for the accountants as well. Um, depending on which experts you believe, the cost of uh, the remedial work was between 1.15 million and 2.45 million pounds. Um, the court decided, it's a bit of an academic exercise, but the cost. Uh, in terms of the reduced value of Heaney's land would have been 225,000. You know, if you'd have offered them 225,000, they, know, they should have accepted it. But it is controversial. Um, one thing that then happened, if you go to, or past Toronto Square in Leeds, quite close to the train station, that's why I know it. I went to the course in Leeds and uh, somebody insisted on showing me 
the site. I was mentioning this case and they insisted on showing me the site and I missed my train. Um, but anyway, that's another story. Um, one thing is obvious that these two additional floors are still there. They obviously settled it and we don't know how much about it. Bets they had to pay Heaney a tidy sum of money to go away. And don't uh, ignore the potential for rights to light. You know, surveyors in these developments should be looking around and how much should we have to offer all the neighbours whose windows are obviously been receiving light for 20 years and as he have built it into their purchase price. Um, but uh, that's that's the, the case. Um, there's one sort of issue, um, it's not to do with rights to light, but back in 2014, the Supreme Court heard a case um, came quite famous in its own context this last few years called Coventry and Lawrence, which was about getting injunctions generally for nuisance. This was about a, a race track, motor racing track nearby. Um, and uh, in the past, the starting point would have been that uh, you start off with an injunction um, and uh, it's up to you to show otherwise if you don't and to be subject to the injunction. The Supreme Court said that's still the starting point. The starting point is that if there's a nuisance, you can obtain an injunction unless there's good reasons, you know, if people can show otherwise uh, and just to reward you in damages. Uh, but uh, there was much more of a discretion than perhaps in the past. So whether Heaney does stand the test of time uh, is another matter. There's a sort of salutary message for developers. And that's Heaney, strange case. Okay, perfect. Thank you for talking me through that, Richard. Um, the last case that you wanted to discuss was Ottila Croft and Scandia Care. Could you tell me a little bit more about the background of that? Yeah, it's another right to like case, and it's in 2016. Um, uh, it's a court of appeal decision where they didn't override the High Court decision. And it's probably the exception to the rule, but it's again a, a timely reminder of uh, the importance of rights to light. And also um, trying to negotiate. Um, it all took place in High Wycombe, and Ottercroft had a restaurant um, uh, next door. Uh, Scandia Care um, had a premises. I think it was a cafe with residential units up above. Uh, a doctor Rahamayan. Um, it's the last time I say that uh, was. Uh, the owner of Scandia Care and director. Um, they intended, or well, they built a storeroom at the back of their land, which uh, uh, close to, to, to Ottercroft's kitchen. Uh, and they also rerouted a fire escape that was going to the residential units. It was originally wooden. They replaced it by a metallics fire escape, but uh, they actually put it in a different place. So it partially, blocked the windows to the kitchen, not the restaurant itself, but to the kitchen at the back. Uh, and uh, Ottercroft uh, objected to this and wanted an injunction, you know, pull down, you know, and put back where it was, your, your, your metallic uh, fire escape. And that's basically what the case was about. Were there any negotiations that went on? Well, that's where Dr. Rahamayan um, um, really came unstuck. They seemed to realise that uh, Ottercroft would have objected to their plans, so kept them quiet, and we're just going to do this on the quiet and hope that they could present uh, Ottercroft with a, with a, a fait accompli. They also, um, again, sort of come massively unstuck, but they undertake uh, the 1991 undertakings that um, 
um, they wouldn't infringe upon the rights to, uh, rights to light and the likes, and they just preached the undertakings quite openly. And it was actually said in the first instance uh, court that Dr. Rahamayan was uh, seemed to be untrustworthy throughout, so he didn't do himself any favours. Um, so that was it. So that was the, the sort of background. There was, you know, to all intents, no negotiations, and Ottercroft did in court proceedings. Um, the court found for the decision that um, the impact on your lights was uh, reduced the value of your property by about £886. I never know how they, that's sort of accurate on these things, roughly, approximately. The cost of replacing the fire escape was not huge, but uh, around about probably just under £6,000. And the court decided, and the Court of Appeal didn't overturn it, that uh, in spite of the differences, because of... Uh, Dr. Rahamayan and Scandia Care's attitude, uh, it would be right that uh, they had to replace £6,000. It wasn't a huge sum of money enough to bankrupt you. And that's what happened. And that's obviously a post up Coventry and Lawrence case as well. And so, Richard, what's the overriding message here? Well, as in uh, HKR UK and Heaney, firstly, think carefully about impact on rights to light, be it a big, big multi million pound development or be it a fire escape. And secondly, try to negotiate because the courts might just take into account lack of negotiating. And certainly if you've undertaken not to, to block light and determine that you should have an injunction against you, which might be much, much more costly than a damages claim for reduced value of the land. They did themselves no favours. And that's it. Thank you, Richard. I think that's the perfect time to round this podcast off. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode of Unpacking the Case.